0: I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. Here's your host, Adam Taylor. What's up, everybody? Happy
1: Friday. Welcome back to another Celtics Blog episode. And today we're joined by probably the most often-coming NBA writer going. I remember seeing a tweet from him about a month ago, God, saying he's gone from Facebook to full-time. You know, he's really making waves in the media at the moment. Mr. Nikias Duncan, how are you doing today, buddy?
0: Hi, I'm doing pretty well, man. How about
1: yourself? I'm living life, man. Uh trying to stay safe, stay indoors and just wait for basketball because this, <laughs> yeah. this off season's been like super short, but it feels like it's lasted forever. Yeah, I definitely feel that. Gotta stay safe out here. How about yourself? You keeping well? You um you gonna be traveling to games with everything that's going on at the moment?
0: Uh I don't know. Like I'm I'm fine, just kinda zooming from the house, honestly. Uh, definitely save some money on gas and on flights. I'm cool with the setup right now. Just got to wait for everything to die down.
1: Dude, where, I am, where I'm at, Zoom has been a a new world to me, man. I've been able to get some things beyond some of these press conferences that would never have happened without Zoom. So in a way, I'm right. thankful for that. And I'm kind of like, I don't want it to change now. <laughs> right, right, right. But, uh, you know, you want everything to get back to normal sooner rather than later, just for content, if nothing else.
0: Mm-hmm definitely feel that
1: so the reason i asked you one was you dropped this piece uh it's pretty lengthy pretty in depth for basketballnews.com where you were previewing the atlantic division Mm -hmm. and you know this is celtics blog podcast so we're going to want to definitely touch on your thoughts on the celtics i really liked what you had to say and then we'll get your thoughts on a couple of the other teams uh one of the lines that i really liked that i kind of read over again earlier was Kyrie Irving can turn a picture of a lemon into a picture of lemonade. So <laughs> I'm going to want you to open up on that a little bit. But let's just jump in with with the Celtics. So one of the things that you really like is Jason Tatum and Jaden Brown, which evidently everybody really likes that. Where do you see their jumps coming from? Because for me, it's been a lot more, I want to see more playmaking from Tatum. And I'd like to see a little bit more of aggression driving the lane, even though he did show improvement there last year. And then with Brian, it's definitely going to be playmaking for me.
0: Um, I think you pretty much hit it on the head. Like, um, Jason Tatum has gotten better. Uh, you particularly saw it in the bubble and then going into the postseason that the passing got better. And once you add in that kind of playmaking, got a pick and roll in combination with the pull-up shooting that he has from deep from mid-range. Uh, obviously, he can kind of ISO from the mid-post and kind of beat guys that way. Um He is becoming a complete offensive player like right before our eyes, which is exciting for Celtic fans, kind of scary for everyone else, just because he's this good already, he's this young, and the game is still slowing down for him. So I think you you pretty much nailed it, just improving the playmaking, um, getting a little bit stronger. um, That's going to help him with his aggression towards the rim. It's going to get him to the free throw line more. That was a thing that was starting to pick up um, second half of the season as well. Um, Really started to use kind of those tricks of the trade Once he got into the lane to kind of draw those files. So once that continues, that will give him some easier buckets. Um, As as I mentioned in the piece, if he's developing in that area or just, you know, trying to add a floater to the game when teams are like playing drop defense against them, um, there is a path to where he could challenge for a scoring title because his offensive repertoire is that diverse and he's only going to get better Um, for Jalen Brown. You know, he's. Mostly a play finisher. You want, you know, Kemba Walker triggering your actions. You want Jason Tatum triggering your actions. And then once the defense is already bent, then you kick it out to Jalen Brown, and he's knocking down threes at what a forty percent clip, or whatever he shot on catch and shoot opportunities. Or he can get to the basket because he is a strong finisher, um, explosive leaper. So uh, once the game slows down a little bit more for him as well, you can give him some more on ball reps, some more pick and roll reps. See how um, see how his passing progressions there. But I like the role that he's in. I mean. He's overqualified for the role, but that's what makes Boston's offense so dynamic.
1: Yeah, so with Brand, one of the things that I noticed this season that I didn't really see much of in the seasons before, and I've kind of hammered this now quite a bit at this point on this show, is um his jump shot, he kind of altered his release point. Like he started to release at the apex of his jump this year, which for me is going to be a huge part in why, his percentage went up and he, he rose in the catch-and-shoot percentiles just because of that slight mechanic change. What I'm not too sure about with Brown, and I'm very similar on this with Tatum as well, is how tight their dribbles are at speed. I feel like Brown's probably got a little bit more control, but both mm. of them, to me, feel like they're, um, they're still a little bit out of control in terms of when they're driving the lane fast, they're, they're turnover-prone or they're easy to draw charges from. So I'm I'm a little concerned with that there. Have you seen much of anything like that when you're watching the film?
0: Uh yeah, I think that's definitely fair. Um, uh, particularly with Tatum. I think that was part of the reason why he had such a leap offensively this year. Um, the the handle has improved leaps and bounds from his rookie season. Um, he just didn't have the ability to move defenders in that way. And I think that's why you got into some of those um some of those contested mid-range jumpers that he was taking in the first year, first couple of years of his career, and now he's kind of parlaying that into better attempts at the rim. Um, he's using it to set up a side step three or a step back three. Um, he, you know, he has more rhythm, um, easier transfer when he's going into those pull-up threes. I think all of that has helped. So that's definitely getting there. Uh, Jalen Brown, as you mentioned, the handle is a little bit tighter. I think it's more decision-making and tunnel vision with Brown more so than the handle itself, even though there is room for improvement there. So I do think as both of those guys improve their handles, they're going to be able to get to their spots better. And it's going to shift defenses in a way that they haven't been able to do so, do before. And then that's where the experience, the speed of the game kind of slowing down for them. I think that's where that helps. And then you see more of the leaps in passing.
1: Because one of the things that stuck out as well, and I'm going to keep saying things stuck out because there's loads of good bits in this article, was you referenced Jason Tatum as arguably the best off-ball defender in the league. Um, I'm happy to agree, but I'd like to know what you think separating him from other off-ball defenders. For me, it was that passing lane vision, knowing when to clog the lane and when to stick with his man and when to kind of explode to catch that steal. But is there anything he's doing specifically that maybe people watching the games aren't going to notice that you think really elevates that off-ball defense.
0: Um, I think the biggest thing for me is just watching Jason Tatum when he's kind of on the weak side defensively when teams run pick and roll. Um, I think the clip that I used was against the Cleveland Cavaliers in the article where Jason Tatum's responsibility was to drop down and tag the role man as Cleveland ran a pick and roll, and then from there, as I think it was, uh, I think it was Jordan Clarkson, so before he got traded, um. He kind of dragged defense out a little bit and then Tatum had to play in between two players, um, which is what you would call splitting the difference. You want to play the man that's kind of on the wing around the three point line, the guy in the corner, play in between those two and then read what the ball handler is doing and then kind of jump it there. Jason Tatum is incredible at anticipating what the ball handler is going to do and even better at kind of baiting the ball handler into making the pass that he wants them to make. He'll cheat a little bit to the corner because he knows the ball is gonna try to hit the guy on the wing, and then by the time the ball handler's releasing the ball, Tatum's shooting back to the wing, and then he's picking that pass off and getting the easy though. So he just he just has a crazy amount of feel on that end. Um, already has a little bit of craft beyond his years, again baiting guys into making passes that look open but really aren't, and that's where his wingspan, um, the athleticism, kind of shine through there. So for him to already have those kind of instincts as young as he is. It's, I mean, it's honestly incredible. Um, I would clarify that he's probably the best off-ball wing defender because if you're just, you know, if you're talking about every player in the league, you have to include bigs. And, you know, that's where a guy like Giannis, who just won defense player of the year, that's where he stands out as well. He can just kind of be in three or four different places at once. So I think among, like, perimeter players, I think Tatum should get that call. He, he's really good at anticipating.
1: Yeah, I mean – The jumps he's made on both ends of the floor over the last two years, kind of, you know, the argument for a future MVP challenge isn't crazy to me. I don't know why I lost that word then. It isn't crazy to me to think that he's going to be an MVP in a year or two. Thinking that it might be this year for me is a bit too soon in his career. It's not impossible. I just like to try and be realistic when I'm... um, when I'm looking at what these guys are going to achieve this season and then like if I was looking at this article scrolling down a bit one of your biggest things to be concerned about is Campbell Walker's knee Uh, I've hit this nail as well a few times but I definitely want your opinion my biggest concern is if it was a structural issue then it would have been operated on but because they've gone for stem cell treatment that points more towards a degenerative problem which Mm -hmm. then comes down to load management and you know back-to-backs especially in the playoffs where it's far more physical the game's a bit slower, but then there's going to be bursts that you need Kemba to really be able to turn the Jets on. Mm-hmm. Do you think he's going to be able to stay healthy enough throughout a playoff run to be able to help this team get to the finals?
0: Um, I think there's a good chance. And I think Boston was definitely looking to be a little bit proactive on that front this offseason. Um, if you believe the reports that Danny Age and the crew were trying to shop Kemba a little bit this offseason – Clearly, they they are exhibiting a little bit of concern there. But also adding a guy like Jeff Teague, who has been a starting point guard for most of his career, um, a guy that can kind of fill the gaps for you. I think he's probably going to be, what, Boston's sixth man, I would assume, where he may start while Kimba misses the beginning of the season this year. Just a guy that you can trust to kind of get guys into their spots, can knock down spot-up shots, can get to the rim because he's still one of the faster point guards in the league. Um, just Just a solid placeholder to have. So I think you're able to bring Kemba along a little bit more slowly and during the regular season, you're able to be more conservative with him as he recovers. And then once the postseason comes, you hope that Kemba is fresh enough to where you can say, all right, we're going to need you for 32, 34 minutes. You know, Jason Tatum has already ascended to being the number one guy. They just need Kemba to be that true um, off the dribble threat, that high pick and roll threat. Um, You know, Tatum is good in that area, but he doesn't have the shake and the quick trigger that Kemba Walker has is just a different dynamic that Kemba brings to the table. So I do think once you have, you know, a hierarchy, when you have Tatum, when you have Brown, guys that can kind of lead you through the regular season, when you have a guy like Jeff T that can kind of act as a placeholder during the regular season, then it makes it easier for you to manage Kemba. And I think Boston is set up in a way to where you can kind of conserve him for those larger bursts in the postseason.
1: So with Jeff Teague, one of my biggest concerns was a few days ago, I went back and watched every pick and roll position he had from last season, Mm -hmm. Uh, split across both teams because obviously he moved midway through the year or just before. And my biggest concern was like, he's not rewarding the the big that rolls with him. He's very much a tunnel vision guy. Once he beats a guy off the dribble, he likes to get into the lane and he likes to finish with that scoop layup. You know, the one that comes high off the glass. Mark Fault seems to like that as, as, as well. But the problem with that scoop play-up is it's really easy for weak side rotations to block it or to be able to alter the shot enough that you're not going to get it to fall. Mm. My concern there is when you've got a guy like Kemba Walker that's capable of pulling up from three reliably and then you've got a guy like Thompson that can mop up, that's fine. But if you're running that with someone like Daniel Tice that is versatile as hell, but not really that physical to dominate the offensive glass, can you see that? Can you see Teague being able to keep the Celtics above 500 while Kemba's out, if while they're using that high pick and roll play sets? Because that seems to be the the way that Brad Stevens has structured this team now is he's going to want them to run a bunch of high pick and roll offense.
0: Um, I think so. Um, it's going to help that you know if Teague's running those pick and rolls. He's going to have shooting around him. Um, I also think, you know, the way that Boston was staggering their lineups last year, you know, one of Tatum or Brown was always on the floor. Um, you have a guy like Marcus Smart, who, you know, he's coming off a year where he shot really well. He's also a guy that can run a pick and roll for you. So if nothing else is not going to be on Teague to be like the primary guy in that area, um, you could have if, if you're playing Teague and Smart together, for instance, you could have Marcus Smart run the initial pick and roll. Um, he does have underrated pass and can get to the rim. He's a guy that can kind of puncture the defense first and then Jeff T can work at second side. So then him having tunnel vision doesn't really matter because your defense, the defense is already scrambling. So it's just is the big helping or is the weak side rotating down? If they are, make the pass. If not, go to that scoop layup that he likes so much. So I do think the personnel around him is going to kind of hide some of the warts that he has and, you know, that's a good point that you mentioned there with him having a tunnel vision of the types of shots that he makes. That's why he has always been more of a, you know, a point guard in the 14 to 16 range among starting point guards and not one of those top ten guys. Because he doesn't have he isn't that diverse. He doesn't have the advanced um, doesn't make those advanced reads and kick and roll. But um, you know, he has the athleticism to get to his spots and he can punch your defenses in that way. So I think if you put him in a situation where he's playing with multiple ball handlers. Um, he's going to be playing with a good screener either way. If it's Tristan Thompson, if it's Daniel Tice, that's going to help him get downhill. And again, playing with better perimeter players, I think he, he'll he have the opportunity to kind of work as a secondary guy sometimes in the half court as well. And that just make those reads easier for him. I think Boston's going to be fine in that regard.
1: Yeah, the Celtics ran a lot of um, slip screens and go screens last year as well. Predominantly when it was Rob Williams on the floor because they wanted to get the vertical spacing from doing so. But mm-hmm. I'm really intrigued to see how Teague Kind of hits that slip man, and whether or not he's willing to give the ball off from the perimeter to be able to get that short roll passing, and then mm-hmm. see what a guy like Daniel Tice can do. Because for me, Daniel Tice is um, a very underrated short roll facilitator. Mm-hmm. So being able to hit him on a slip and allow him to work the ball out to the to the weak side ring would be ridiculously valuable because of Teague's ability to kind of dart off ball and create some form of collapse on the defense to open up shots from from the weak side corner. So I'm interested to see more on what he's... Because you notice know when you're watching possessions, generally you're only seeing the time when the ball's in their hands. So I haven't seen much of Teague off-ball,
0: so I'm hoping he'll be an upgrade in that respect. And you know, so if, he's, if he doesn't have the ball, he's mostly just kind of spotting up around the arc. Uh, hasn't shown a lot as a cutter, um, at least not recently. You know, at back when he was with the Atlanta Hawks, they preached a lot of movement after giving the ball up. So... It'll be. I don't think it will be a hard adjustment for him if he does have to be a little bit more active off ball. But, I mean, he's been fine as a spot-up shooter over the last couple of seasons as well. So, either way, I think he's going to provide a little bit of value there if he doesn't have the ball.
1: Another one that made me laugh, and um, I felt like this on draft night, and I've kind of talked myself into being really happy about it at this point just because, you know, you have to live with what you're given, <laughs> is um, you want someone to explain Peyton Pritchard to you like you're five. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I just didn't get – it was interesting. I understand Boston wanting to add a little bit more point guard depth. Um, I didn't really understand them using a first-round pick on that. Like, I feel like they had enough picks to trade back or just kind of trade for a veteran if they wanted to do that. And then that just kind of – it kind of came to fruition when they ended up signing Jeff Teague anyway. Um, but also just Peyton Pritchard in general. When a guy like Grant Riller was on the board, then he falls to the fifties, and I feel like he's going to be one of the better point guards out of this year's class. And you know, Grant Riller really is a guy that can kind of get to the rim whenever he wants. And I think Boston would enjoy having that kind of uh, that kind of rim penetration from a young guard. So it, it was just it, it was certainly a pick that I did not understand. Um, I am glad that you're finding some positives out of it.
1: So, we, where I'm based, like I'm out in the UK, so we don't get too much college ball here. It's starting to pick up a bit now. It's a lot easier. It looks like it's going to be a lot easier for me to follow it this year. But last year, there weren't too much, so I was reaching out to guys through Twitter who I know do a lot of draft work, mm-hmm. and when the Celtics drafted Pritchard, I was like, I'd literally had a couple of draft guys on this show a few days before. His name had never been mentioned to me, so I'm like, who's this dude? Uh, <laughs> I'm reaching out to guys. Like, should I be happy about this? They're like, man, I had him like 70th on my board. I had him like 75th. One guy was like, he was got. I had him going undrafted and then struggling to make the G League. Um, G- I'm like, okay, so people are low on this guy. And then you see, like, you start looking into the film, you start looking into the journey that he's had to the NBA, and he just looks like a really gritty competitor. Um, really good floor spacing. Looks like he can run a pick and roll, but he just lacks that that athleticism and that turn, that change of pace that really puts you from being a good point guard to a, a damn like, close to great point guard. Mm-hmm. And I feel like he's going to struggle to get minutes during, during the regular season. And he, the lack of the main and the Red Claws team this year is going to really hinder him, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, it's just kind of tough. And then once you compare it to a guy like Grant Riller, who was probably the best slashing guard in the class, it's, it's hard to... It's hard to justify the pick. Like, obviously, we have to see the games we played. He may outperform everyone's projections. You, we never really know. But just going off the initial reaction from that pick and then seeing how the rest of the draft went, um, went, it was
1: confusing to say the least. Man, I was upset when they got Neesmith. I wanted – Um, I was so high on Kira Lewis. It was ridiculous. Yeah, and
0: that been nice.
1: He's there at 13, and I'm, like, super hyped. It's, like, 2 a.m. I'm waking people up in my house – <laughs> gonna get kira lewis gonna get ke- and then he gets drafted once but before and i'm heartbroken but uh <laughs> like literally heartbroken like i don't i don't even i don't even want to watch this no more uh, <laughs> you know but I, I i fought through it i fought through it and now neesmith looks like he's going to be a great guy i'm assuming Boston are hoping he can have a a duncan robinson kind of impact brad stevens is playing that down though saying like look he's shown he's a good He's a good player, but he's probably not going to be ready for a rotation spot to begin the year. Do you think adding that shooting is going to help them against a team like Philadelphia? Because I know that you've put in your piece that you are kind of you kind of like the way Philly are working at the moment. They've added the, the prioritised shooting. They added some toughness in Tyrese Maxey. So when we're looking towards the playoffs, assuming that Neesmiths had a, you know, a, a respectable rookie year, we're not going to expect him to be challenging for rookie of the year or anything. Do you think having that extra shot-making ability that Boston so sorely needed last playoffs is gonna help them get past these teams that are just becoming stacked like Philly, like Milwaukee? Uh,
0: well, I think I've
1: left so. out Brooklyn, and that was unfair of me. Like Brooklyn too.
0: Yeah, like I, I think Neesmith definitely has a role. Again, he he's a guy that can shoot the leather off the ball, and I think you can never really have enough shooting, especially you know, particularly from the wings. Um, if you're just projecting it. For like a rotation spot like I guess he gets the brand Wanamaker minutes from last year and you know, Wanamaker played pretty well during the postseason from what I watched um decent spark plug I think you add a little bit more size with Neesmith um you add more shooting with Neesmith and if you have those decision makers off the bench like Jeff T once Kemba Walker comes back um like a Marcus Smart rather he rather if he's coming off the bench or if he's kind of Helping uh, run those second units um, when Boston staggers their starters, um, having a guy like Neesmith Smith that can spot up and also relocate or just fly off screens and kind of bend defenses in that way, I think that will definitely help in the half court.
1: So let's move past Boston a little bit because we've kind—I've of, kind of hammered that one section of your article to death at this point, and I feel bad. Because it
0: was... <laughs> it's it's a Celtics part, it's fine.
1: Yeah, but you know, you've put all this work in and there's about five or six other teams on here that I really like the look of in the way you've broke it down. But for me, it's like, okay, so I'm personally not seeing the Raptors as a huge threat this upcoming season. Uh I should do, but for some reason the way Nick Nurse acted in the playoffs, I'm just not gonna act like Toronto exists until we have to play them. And I feel like Brooklyn is going to be one of those teams that if it works, it's going to be phenomenal. And if they don't work and it it goes to hell, then they're going to be an absolute train wreck this year. And there's no way of knowing how that's going to go until we're about 30, 35 games into the year. Mm -hmm. And then obviously you have to kind of respect, always respect Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, which again could turn into a train wreck. So, which of these teams do you feel like are going to be the biggest threat to Boston coming out of the East if it was a playoff series?
0: Ah, uh, for looking at a playoff series, I would say Philadelphia is probably going to be the biggest threat. You know, at least within the division, um, I would say it's Philadelphia because as well-rounded as Boston is, you know, they have the wing talent. Uh, if Kemba Walker's healthy, they definitely have the creation from the point guard spot. You know Marcus Mark can do a little bit of everything. Like it's a really good team. It's a well coached team. Um if you're going to poke holes in Boston, it's in their front court. Tristan Thompson is really good, but he's 6'9. Uh Daniel Tyson was really good last year, but he's 6'9, 6'8. Um, if the Sixers are healthy and you have that added shooting, it's going to be incredibly difficult to defend Vincent, uh defend Joel Embiid. And also Ben Simmons. You know, if he's able to grab a defensive rebound and kind of push a transition. And now you have Seth Curry on one side, Danny Green on the other side. It, it gets tough stopping that kind of freight train in transition. And then the half court, you know, Joel Embiid is the NBA's most prolific post player right now. And that's with the issues that he has with double teams. Um, as I wrote in the piece, um, you know, he has improved as a pass out of double teams. And the big, but he still struggles to kind of diagnose where the doubles are coming from and to react to that quickly. But now, once you add, you know, you add a Danny Green, you add a Seth Curry, you add an Isaiah Joe in the draft if he cracks the rotation, um, if a T. Steibel if he continues to shoot well, you know, teams have to start defending him because he made threes at a pretty decent clip last year, but teams weren't defending him like a shooter. Another year of shooting well, you'll have to you have to start cheating out there a little bit. And that's a little bit of gravity there. So if you have more shooters around Joel and B, you can't double him as frequently. And with that kind of size and physicality advantage, that just sets up for a series where Joel and B can be the best player on the floor. And that could spell trouble for a team like Boston. So I think Philly is the team you have to watch there if they have it all together.
1: One of the things that I've noticed as well is a Duck Rivers coach team is usually a mentally tough team. They generally, they'll fight to the very last whistle. And that was something that you didn't really see from the Sixers over the last few seasons. They're, Similar to Boston, I think they're quite easily getting in their own heads and Bede plays very emotional. So if he feels like it isn't going well, you kind of see if his effort levels drop. I think Duck, Duck Rivers in that respect is going to bring a different type of toughness to that Sixers squad, which scares the life out of me because you hope that you can beat them enough that they stop trying to win, mm-hmm. um, which kind of happened in the last series in the playoffs, but obviously they didn't have Simmons. So you... Personally, I feel like it's a bit disingenuous to read too deep into that, if I'm being fair to Philly.
0: Yeah, I do think, you know, Doc just brings that experience, you know, a level of experience that Brett Brown just didn't have. And as well as the job that Brett Brown did overall during the stint in Philly, kind of taking them through that process era and bringing them to the playoffs, uh, building teams around Embiid and around Simmons, Um, adjusting for Simmons like on the fly and things of that nature. Once you get in the fire, like you have to think quickly. Um, You have to read not just what's happening on the floor, but also reading the emotions of your team. Um, Doc Rivers has just done that. He's done that for a title team. He's done that for teams with title aspirations. Um, We've also seen, you know, the downside of that, you know, the collapses with the Clippers, um, things like, you know, blowing those 3-1 leads. So he's also been on the other side of that as well. So he's going to bring a lot of experience and a lot of lessons to the table for a young, so a relatively young Sixers team that just hasn't been through those kind of battles yet. Um, injuries have thwarted their last two runs, honestly. So I think he, I think he does um, help a little bit in that regard. But I think even more so than that, like it's just the personnel, just adding shooting around. A dominant paint presence like Joel and B and then another dominant paint presence, but in a different way. Ben Simmons. Spacing the floor for those guys is just the easiest fix to make this team dangerous. And I think Daryl Morey in that front office did a great job of doing that.
1: And what do you think of Brooklyn? Do you feel like this Kyrie-Kevin Durant tandem is going to work? Or do you feel like somewhere down the line it's going to start showing its own cracks?
0: I, I'm just not high on Brooklyn. And like, I, I understand that I could get old takes exposed somewhere down the line on this tape, but like, I, I just don't see it. I think from a talent perspective, um, you're looking at the end of games. You'll always have a KD ISO. You'll always have a Kyrie ISO. You'll always have a Kyrie, KD pick and roll, to force a switch or whatever. And it's going to be incredible because those are two of the more skilled players that I've ever played basketball, but beyond them, the roster just feels disjointed and it's very, very weak defensively. Um, I think it was Malika Andrews tweeted out yesterday during the zoom calls with Brooklyn. Katie said he anticipates playing some four and playing some five this year. And he's kind of, he'll kind of have to just based on what the nets have out there. Like it's Deandre Jordan who was fine last year, but you don't really want him playing in space. Um, it's Jared Allen, who can block shots, but can't really rebound and can't defend post ups because he's so thin. It's Jeff Green as a small ball five, and he was fine last year. But if you're relying on Jeff Green, just, you know, just as a concept that hasn't really worked out throughout his career, he's been incredibly inconsistent. And then on the perimeter, the best perimeter defender that Brooklyn has is Bruce Brown, who is, what, 6'3". You really want him defending point guards or some off, or some twos. You don't really want him defending the wing there. Um, Kyrie isn't a strong defender. Joe Harris isn't a strong defender. Spencer Dinwiddie is a strong defender. Karis LaVert is a strong defender. There are just so many question marks before you even get into what happens if Kyrie takes a last shot and KD was open. What is that conversation going to be like? How is Steve Nash going to manage the egos? How is Steve Nash going to manage the coaching staff that, that are all like includes Dan Tony, includes Jack Vaughn, that are all way more experienced than him? So I there's there's just a lot going on off the court as well that you don't even have to get into because the on court questions are there. So I, I just don't see if it's Brooklyn team this year. Like they're they're a trade and another offseason away, I think, from being like serious contenders in the East.
1: And you see that trade being a Harden trade.
0: I mean, at that point, I guess just having that kind of big three is just overwhelming, but still it's kind of weak defensively. Like I I'm thinking smaller, like trading one of LeVert or Den getting like a guy like Aaron Gordon in there to kind of fill the roster. Like they, they just need they need some defensive help. They need something at the four, I feel like. Um that's kind of where I'm thinking.
1: Yeah, and that's um, fair. I mean I feel the same. I feel like Harden on that roster would just be overkill. There's only enough enough passes to keep those three happy. All three need the ball in their hand to be, to be effective. Apart from Durant, to be fair to Durant, he's probably the only one there that would be able to play off ball.
0: Yeah, and like Kyrie has the experience playing off a ball-dominant wing. You know, he's had the LeBron experience. But that, that's just a lie. And it doesn't – Harden would be a luxury ad for them, and that would be one heck of a luxury ad. James Harden is one of the, what, six or seven best players in the league. But he doesn't solve what their biggest issues are. And even adding him to the fray, once you, you know, account for the depth that they're going to have to give up, it'll probably be Dinwiddie, it'll probably be Levert, it'll probably be Allen, and and then picks and whatever. It doesn't solve their defensive issues in the front court or the back court. So in the games that matter, yeah, you can stagger a certain way, but there are always going to be weak points that the other teams can attack. And all it takes is one, you know, 11 for 28 game from Harden or a game that KD doesn't have it. or a, game that Kyrie says, I'm going to get mine first, second, and third because you guys looked me off in the last quarter and then things you know, that's a bad quarter and that's all it needs in a a playoff setting. So I, you know, far be it for me to say, hey, a top six player in the NBA is available and wants to play for you. Don't do it. But I don't think Harden should be priority number one, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I don't think Harden should be priority number one for any team that that he's being linked with at the moment except for maybe Miami mm-hmm. uh simply because i just don't feel like his brand of basketballs conducive to championships excuse I... me um i feel like i likened him more to Cam- carmelo anthony in terms of like an elite scorer and all-time hall of fame shot maker but mm-hmm. just not capable of getting out of his own way in terms of taking a taking a lesser role to be able to make a team better and fight for that chip?
0: Um, I would say with that comparison, I mean, like, just comparing those guys as players in a vacuum, I think it falls apart because of the playmaking that Harden brings. But I do get your general point. Um, I would just say I feel like some of the Harden criticism is going a bit far. I think for a guy like Melo, he couldn't get out of his own way um, because, you know, he felt like he should be a number one. And that was a valid feeling for, you know, a few years of his career. But also, he didn't necessarily have the play style or the skill set to adapt in a way that would make him an effective number two. But I think Harden, A, has the skill set to adapt to whatever is needed. You know, that's just going to come down to willingness on his part. But also, if he is traded to a team like Miami, I don't think there's going to... I don't think there will have to be a large adjustment to Harden. Um, I was actually talking about it on my timeline a little bit earlier today. You know, in terms of like the sets that Miami runs or just the, the actions that they get into like in early offense situations, they basically run a lot of Houston's or D'Antoni's actions for like Goran Dragic, for Jimmy Butler. If you're talking about like the pistol action coming out the out of the wings or whatever. So in terms of stuff like that, like it's just it's hand in glove for James Harden to just come in right there. And I also think with James Harden being as great as he is as an offensive player, I think the hierarchy would kind of shake out in a way that he would be the number one option. Jimmy Butler could bludgeon guys. You know, Bam Adebayo already kind of operates as a high post hub. He's more passing and play finishing more so than creating for himself. So I think the hierarchy would be pretty clean there. So I, I, I think if there's going to be a contender that makes the swing for Harden, I think it's Miami because there just wouldn't have to be a super big adjustment there.
1: Yeah, that definitely make the most sense, definitely. And as a Celtics guy, I'm hoping it doesn't happen because that just <laughs> ma- <laughs> that just makes the contention harder. But I understand why that fit works. And obviously there's been the narrative around Miami kind of making moves to keep flexibility open for Giannis. But if you're operating under the assumption that Giannis is going to re-sign, even now or at the end of the season, then you make a move for Harden now because when's a player of that calibre going to become available again during the timeline that you're building around? Right, right, right. Which makes sense. I mean, we've kind of gone away from Celtics now, so I'm going to take it all the way away from basketball just to close this out. Uh, As I said at the top of the show this year, from the outside looking in, in terms of like, you know, social media and seeing how things are going, you blew up this year, dude. Um, it looks like you, everything, <laughs> everything you was working for kind of panned out. Has, has it been for you, man? Has this all shaken out, making that transition from uh, from doing what the rest of us are doing to doing what we're all trying to achieve?
0: It's, I don't want to say it's bittersweet, like 2020 in general has just been an incredibly wild year for me. Um, like on the high end, or I guess just on the low end, like dealing with the house fire that I had, that I had uh, earlier this year being displaced and dealing with that kind of stress. And then fast forwarding to August to getting my first full-time writing offer. It has been a whirlwind of emotions all year long. In addition to just the general weirdness that 2020 has brought for everyone with the pandemic, with you know me being in the United States, just the foolishness that's going on at the White House and has been going on for years. It's, it's been a lot to navigate, um, but I'm also just very appreciative of the opportunity that I've had, um, my hard work paying off, um, the people that I've looked at, looked up to and reached out to that have helped me along my way, um, people that I've learned from, you know, by reading, by listening, um, just picking brains on, you know, different things that I'm trying to do in terms of, like, film analysis and things like that. I'm just appreciative of the people that I have around me and in my corner. It, It's really made this journey worthwhile, even with those kind of pitfalls that I've had to deal with. It's It's been a crazy year. I'm excited to see what's happening next year.
1: So I'm always the optimist here. So the first thing we say is it sucks about the house fire, but at least you got it alive and safe. Right. Um, oh, I always try and look at things in the most positive light. The second thing is dude i remember seeing your twitter account i think he was at 14k and then the next time i checked it you were sitting around like 26 uh, when we're saying you blew up you blew up by quite a large <laughs> scale quite quickly you know um uh, your work's been solid man i try and check out everything you put out um i have you on notifications actually so whenever you drop something, i've usually got one of the first, hopefully one of the first ones to read that Has it been just knowing like waking up in the morning and being like damn i don't have to go to the office today like <laughs> I need to get, I need to get this film in, and then there's like, oh wait, there's no team, there's no games yet, so I can kind of chill and get the film in a bit later. Is it is it a more relaxed lifestyle, or is it way
0: harder? Oh man, it is. I think that's my favorite part of this whole ordeal. Like, obviously, in a vacuum, being paid to like write and watch basketball is just the dream. But also, like, before I got the full time offer, you know, I was doing freelance, and like, I'm doing that while also. You know, earlier in my career, it's going to school and then later it's working a job that I just couldn't stand. But, you know, it helped help pay some bills. So like not having to, you know, drive down for a job that I didn't like. I can just kind of wake up and be like, okay, cool. I have a writing assignment. Let me peck away at this. Or if I don't have anything assigned, let me fire up the PS4 or now fire up the PS5. I can just kind of hang out and chill, roam Twitter when I want to. You know, if some news breaks and I can write about it, and if if not, I can just kind of just kind of chill. So, just having that kind of relaxation, kind of built into the job, it, it's it's a blessing. That's my favorite part. I can just kind of just kind of stay at home, do whatever. Um, you know, ha- make sure I get my assignments out of the way, uh, make sure I'm staying in tune with NBA news. But I just I don't have to leave my house. I still do, but like I don't have to now. And I think that just having the option to just kind of relax is is a blessing.
1: Yeah, not leaving your house because you don't have to. That's the dream. Not leaving your house because you're told not to. That's a little bit different. <laughs> <laughs> it changes the narrative massively like, because when we I've been on a, in this country we've had two lockdowns now and um, then they, we came out of lockdown about a week ago. They were saying, um, oh, you're going to be in a tier. Um, my city is in tier three which is effectively a lockdown except you can go to a couple more stores. Mm. And um, it's like, I wouldn't be going out the house anyway, but because I can't go out the house because I'm being told, like, this sucks.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <I didn't laughs> see you on it.
1: It's different, man, the mentality. But, like, guys, if you're listening and you haven't been checking out Nikias' work, then make sure you head over to basketballnews.com. I want to retweet this article that we've been discussing about an hour after the pod drops, because if I do it straight away, it's, it's going to get lost in the timeline. Um, where else can everybody find you, bro?
0: Um, you can mostly find me on Twitter, Nakias NBA, N E K I A S NBA. Um, just tweeting general NBA thoughts, um, tweeting out puns, um, tweeting about pizza, I'm um, live tweeting shows. You know, just doing a little bit of everything. But that's where you're gonna find most of my content. So if you want to interact with me anywhere, it's gonna be on Twitter.
1: And shockingly, some soccer takes as well.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, getting into soccer over the last couple of years. Um, I love that I hopped on the United wave like after their reign, so now all I get is the pain of it. But uh, it's it's definitely been a journey.
1: Yeah, I'm not. Um, I'm probably one of the only English guys in the world that's just about just like nah, soccer's not for me. <laughs> but uh, if you're enjoying it, that's good. Everybody make sure to go follow Nekayas, make sure to check out his work. We'll be back on Monday when hopefully there'll be some news, otherwise there'll be a guest. Otherwise I'm gonna ramble for forty five minutes and see if you guys like that. We'll <laughs> have a good weekend everybody.